Hello and welcome to the Progressive Policy Institute podcast. My name is Colin Mortimer, and today I will be your host. As we all know, there is currently an ongoing global pandemic, and as a result, we are not able to record this podcast in person. Rather, we're recording this over Zoom. As a result, there is the occasional cell phone noise that you'll hear during this podcast. I hope that you'll excuse it and enjoy the content regardless. Crystal Nikishi, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'll start with you, Nikishi. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. I'm Nikichi Taifa. I'm an attorney. I'm a policy analyst. I'm an author. I'm an academician. And I convene the Justice Roundtable, which is a coalition of over 100 organizations working in Washington, primarily on federal criminal justice policy reform issues. Uh, we were the coalition that uh, was largely responsible for the passage of the Second Chance Reentry Bill in 2008, the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010, which reduced the disparity between crack and powder uh, cocaine, and for getting um, specific sentencing provisions uh, that became part of the uh, First Step Act in 2018. So, longstanding organization. I'm a longstanding advocate. Longstanding and well respected. <laughs> oh, thank you, Crystal. Yes, Crystal, I'll give the same question to you as well. Sure. I am Crystal Swan. I'm a senior policy fellow with the PPI at the Progressive Policy Institute. Uh, I have worked on health and human services issues, primarily policy issues, for the last 20, we won't say the end number, 20, 20 plus years. Um, and sort of I come to this from a harm reduction perspective uh, in working um, in my early career on HIV AIDS prevention and education. So Crystal, you kind of hinted at what we're gonna talk about today. But before we get into the meat of the discussion, I wanna do a bit more of a background discussion about the specific legislation that's brought us to this point. Nikishi, would you like to tell the listeners a little bit more about the legislation that brings us to this topic today? Yeah, I'm calling. Well, essentially, it's a bill that will ban ban all flavored uh, tobacco products uh, in Maryland. This is following on the heels of uh, bills that have been introduced and passed in a couple of other states, uh, California, Massachusetts, uh, to be exact. Um, There were similar efforts in um, on federal uh, level uh, in Congress earlier last year. Uh, but basically, blanket prohibition on flavored tobacco. That's what we're talking about and the problems associated with such. Can you go into a bit more detail of why legislation like that might be bad? Because if I'm someone worried about the health effects of tobacco consumption, on its face, that sounds like wonderful legislation. Well, in essence, a ban on flavored tobacco products is a bad, bad idea. You know, you see, for many, many years, I fought to change policies that came about as a part of the flawed war on drugs, which essentially became a war on people, Black people, Black and brown people, and and marginalized people, poor people. But now at a time when the war on marijuana is winding down with the growing legalization of cannabis, the sentiment seems to be to replace it with a war on tobacco, the criminalization of smoking. What would happen is that a ban on flavored cigarettes would likely result in the unnecessary arrest, conviction, incarceration of countless otherwise 
law-abiding, working, and professional people whose crime is their addiction to uh, uh, to tobacco. It will trigger criminal penalties. It will increase negative interactions with police. And let me just tell you this. We do not need another reason for police to stop people on the street. Talk about a bad idea. The death of Eric Garner in New York generated a whole lot of attention, not just for the brutality at the hands of the police, but for the reason for his stop in the first place, which was what? It was selling single cigarettes in violation of state law, wasn't taxed. What these bans really end up resulting in is a slippery slope of over-policing of non-serious interactions leading to fines and pretextual stops and arrests and incarceration, as was in the case with Garner, as was the case with George Floyd and Michael Brown, all of which had something to do with cigarettes or cigarellos or, you know, and the like. So that's my take on it. Right. No. And, and if I can piggyback on that a little bit, um, in addition to that, and I, I totally agree with everything Nikichi just said, uh, you also are creating an environment for a, a black market. Right. So you have a situation where you um, you have uh, folks who are who like the menthol cigarettes can no longer get them legally. So where there's a void, there's always someone willing to fill that void. Right. And then you have um, you could potentially have a black market for cigarettes, cigarettes being uh, imported from other states illegally into the state. And then you create a situation where you have no control over what's in these cigarettes, whether they are branded cigarettes or some other types of cigarettes. So I think it just, I agree, it just creates a real slippery slope, particularly for, for the black community. I agree 100% with uh, Crystal because with the underground market, let me tell you this, the gangs, they're going to love a ban on tobacco. Because see, you know, they have to work. They have to work when you deal with the underground stuff dealing with prostitution or the underground stuff dealing with drugs. But with tobacco, I mean, it's all there. They're not going to have to do too much of, uh, of anything. We're talking about increased violence. And on top of that, the states are going to lose a whole hell of a lot of revenue that they otherwise would have been getting from the, um, you know, the taxing of, of the products. You both brought up menthol cigarettes. People might not understand the significance of those. I definitely didn't understand the significance of those before doing research for this podcast episode. So can one of you explain in detail why they're so important to this discussion? Well, I can speak to it, so why they're so significant. Um, when you look at the fact that approximately 80% of Black folk and 35% of Latinx who smoke prefer menthol, then any ban on flavored tobacco is going to have a disproportionate impact on people of color. And that's a real serious problem and issue right there in and of itself. The Black community has experienced over three decades of misguided knee-jerk policy decisions mandated as part of this flawed war on drugs. And now we're transferring it to what's going to be a flawed war on smoking with a disproportionate impact on Black people. It's a non-starter as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's what's so striking to me, is that in a time when it's the liberal states like California, Maryland, and Massachusetts who are leading the charge to decriminalize cannabis, that they are also leading a charge in the opposite direction to criminalize tobacco. It's one step forward and one step back. And you can be concerned about the health effects of tobacco, but then also be alarmed about how this is going to end up setting back the criminal justice advances we've made with decriminalizing cannabis. 
Um, I think when you when you say liberal, there's a there's a conception that it means liberal in all things. Um, the 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 challenge with, and I'm speaking for myself on this one. Uh, the challenge is that liberal sometimes translates into paternal, right? And you have situations where while while there's some states who have kind of moved in a direction to be more understanding of individuals with um, addiction issues. Uh, and substance use disorders, that's a new phenomenon. Uh, when I first sort of cut my teeth a little bit on this um, during the HIV AIDS um, epidemic, the concern was the spread of the disease was moving so quickly among intravenous drug users and how are we going to address that issue? And prohibition and, and illegal, you know, uh, making it a legal issue didn't stop, the, didn't stop the problem. So the understanding among public health officials was we need to figure out another way. And another way is to provide a safe way in which injection drug users could, could, could inject their drugs. And that took a long, the politics behind that was incredible. And I see certain similarities here, but the piece that's a little bit uh, challenging for me here is tobacco is a legal substance. I mean, nicotine is a legal substance. And to prohibit adults, 21 or over, because that's the federal law now, from accessing a legal substance makes absolutely no sense. If you want to address it from an addiction perspective, and so like Massachusetts is, is really um, known for its um, sort of focus on public health, and it's a little bit off. And in, if you think about harm reduction, across other issues, even there, there's been movement towards harm reduction around opioid use, but that's not to put too crass of a turn on it, happened only when that when that addiction happened to a different group of people, right? And then you saw the turn. That's the same thing that happened with uh, intravenous drug use and, and um, the spread of the virus. When it started sort of moving into different spaces, then the, then the concern became, how can we sort of help these people? And I think um, and meaning that in the most respectful way. Um, I think we're dealing with something similar here, except there's a tremendous stigma around people who smoke. Um, it's a it's a social stigma. It's a it's a it's a it's a stigma related to thinking that an individual doesn't have self control. I mean, and all of those kinds of things. I mean, nicotine is addictive. Nobody's doubting or questioning that that issue. But nicotine is a legal substance. So if you want to address it from my perspective, you address it from a harm, harm reduction angle, not from a prohibition. Prohibitions don't work. I got to say amen uh, to that. And I'll just say, I'm just gonna be transparent. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't use drugs, I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there will always be people who will smoke, always. Just as there will always be people who will be addicted to drugs or alcohol, or caffeine or sugar. I'm addicted to sugar, y'all. Okay, uh, but you know, when Crystal talks about a, um, a public health approach, that's really the direction that legislature should be going in as opposed to a criminal justice type of, uh, of, of approach. There are tobacco products that don't have combustion. I don't know all the scientific stuff regarding that, but um, that are much less harmful than those that involve combustion providing clean needles to drug abusers to help prevent HIV or condoms to um, stem the spread of disease. All of those are acceptable harm reduction strategies. Why not in this venue in vain as well? You've also both used the term harm reduction. Can you briefly explain the concept of harm reduction to listeners? 
I will take a shot. I, I just went, um, I, I like the Drug Policy Alliance's um, definition, so I'll go with that officially, and then I'll give you my, my spin on it, if that's okay. Um, harm reduction is a set of ideas and interventions that seek to reduce the harms associated with both drug use and ineffective radicalized drug policies. So that's where they sort of stand on it. My sort of lay person's term and focus on it is harm reduction is a is a is a is a is an approach that looks at humanizing and, and allowing individuals to maintain their dignity even when they're addicted to a substance. There is this mindset that if you're addicted, somehow you're less than human. Sometimes somehow you're you're less than worthy of our concern. And from a public health perspective, it is it is a focus on saying hey, um, are you, are you, do you want um, addiction treatment? Would you like to get off of heroin? Would you like to get off of whatever your issue is, legal or otherwise, would you like to get off of that? And they're like, if the answer is no, it's not to stigmatize them for saying no, it's to say, okay, well, if you're going to continue to do this, then let us provide you with a less harmful way to consume what you're trying to consume. And nicotine, it, in, um, in the case of smoking, it would be obviously, um, the, the the devices that are non-combustible um, that would be a considered a less harmful in the public health space a less harmful approach to someone who wants to continue to enjoy nicotine which is a legal substance I'm gonna keep saying that because <laughs> we need a lot of education on this issue but nicotine which is a legal substance it would be a way for them to continue to con to enjoy a legal substance in a less harmful way and that's sort of that's my approach on and that's sort of the my approach on harm reduction. Addictions are very powerful, but if we provide people with legal and less damaging ways of getting the substance that they want or that they need, it will really significantly decrease the health risk to themselves and, and others. Unfortunately, the solution that is being offered by legislators is jail, not harm reduction. We need to really change that paradigm. So what I'm getting from both of you then is that we need to move in vaguely the same direction with tobacco that we moved in with other drugs. How then should liberal and conservative states approach cigarette addiction? I just, I feel there just needs to be a greater investment in education and prevention. Um, there needs to be a greater understanding of um, what consumption looks like. What's the difference between the, the product, the, the, the nicotine and the way in which you consume it, right? So I think that there's been, unfortunately, um, a lot of, I don't wanna say misinformation on um, tobacco and around nicotine addiction. And I think, you know, more investment in education and prevention certainly has proven, I mean, we've seen a steady decline in, in smoking um, over the years. It clearly, clearly part of that is about, not about prohibition, but it's about um, you know, their education and prevention. There's some aspects, obviously, that are, are prohibitive as well, but sorry about that. Um, but so, yeah, that would, that would definitely be my approach. Uh, yes, and so I will also say that, um, you know, they're often very well-intentioned um, policies uh, that have um, unintended consequences and, and, you know, in our haste to pass legislation and seek to quote unquote, protect the public or protect society or this paternalism that Crystal talked about, it really is critical that we learn from the mistakes and lessons from the past that we don't rush to judgment uh, by enacting overreaching regulations and prohibitions whose unintended consequences often pose more harm uh, than um, good. 
And, you know, while one should not minimize or ignore, you know, veal harm and damage associated with things, we must not become victim to unfounded fears in, in this whole media sensationalism that is, um, uh, that is out there. Uh, again, policies may be well-intended, uh, yet they might result and often do in over-criminalization infused with racism. Again, we've been down the slippery slope in the past with disastrous consequences. I mean, it reminds me, I mean, I want to bring it a little bit back to the, the, the social justice and racial, racial justice piece of it. Um, and sort of something came up uh, recently and it was, uh, it, it was, it was uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris responding to the um, siege on the Capitol. And she pretty much in her, in her talking, in her speech, basically said there's a justice system that is, ex ex there's a justice, justice system that is experienced differently depending on whether you're white or black. And you're looking at banning a substance that is predominantly used in communities of color, thereby arming the law enforcement apparatus in those spaces to have more of a reason to engage with black communities. Unfortunately, history has shown us those engagements don't work out well. And so I, you know, my, my, my approach and my personal piece about it is, you know, I, I don't think there needs to be another tool to, to promote a level of engagement between the black community and law enforcement, particularly when this is a legal substance. Yeah, ultimately, like, I think that's what needs to be hit home, is that I don't think any lawmaker in this process has bad intentions. They just don't realize the unintended consequence of their actions. And the thing that we just want to drill home is that not only is this going to cause really negative effects broadly, but this is going to particularly cause negative effects amongst the community that is only just starting to get out of the worst of the drug war. So, Crystal and Nikishi, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I'm probably a little biased because I was here for it, but I found it incredibly persuasive, and it really shifted my priors on how the government should be enforcing drug laws, particularly on tobacco, which is such a hot-button issue at the moment. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and if you aren't already, subscribe to the PPI podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.